The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. an order. You make me sick with your heroics. There's a stench of death about you. You carry it in your pack like the plague. You and that Colonel Nicholson, you're two of a kind. Crazy with courage. For what? How to die like a gentleman. How to die by the rules. When the only important thing is how to live like a human being. My name is Nicholson. Give me the book. Well, by all means. You read English, I take it. Do you read Japanese? I'm sorry, no, but if it's a matter of precise translation, I'm sure that can be arranged. You see, the code specifically states that the... Kill him! Kill him! Could have done it. I was ready. Let's go. on the River Kwai, played against the naked canvas of war. Here is a vast panorama of human emotions, the courage and dignity of men who fight for their convictions, the humor of soldiers in the midst of tragedy. I thought you were the enemy, sir. Well, I'm an American, if that's what you mean. The tenderness that springs from the heart. You're lovely. The beauty and brutality that is war on an island in the jungle. 
requires a motion picture achievement by a combination of brilliant creative talent. Produced by Sam Spiegel, who gave you The African Queen and On the Waterfront. Directed by David Lean, who made Brief Encounter and Great Expectations. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo. And I'm your co-host, Kyle. Kyle, today we'll be talking about one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, actually ranks uh, number 36 on the AFI's Top 100 Movies of All Time. Wow. Of course, it is the bridge on the River Kwai. Not over the River Kwai, on, on the River Kwai. Right. Uh, Kyle, this is my first time ever watching this movie. What about you? Uh, probably my sixth or seventh round of the time. Really? Yeah, I've seen it probably you know, half, not half a dozen times, probably. Yeah. So, yeah, I've seen it quite a few times. Yeah. Good movie, um, great movie. It's very... Um, Man, it's very demanding. Um, it's very. It's a brutal um, film. Yeah, um, and we'll we'll get to it. Um, but Kyle, before we get started, I would take the easy way out and say, "Hey, what's your favorite Howard Guinness movie?" Um, oh. Because he starred, uh, not named Star Wars. Let's do that. Not named Star Wars. I mean, let me see if he even have. That well, point. he was in Lawrence of Arabia. Arabia. But like past Lawrence Arabia and Star Wars, I don't know many of the roles he was actually in, so it's hard to say. Like I just kind of just have to go with Lawrence of Arabia, but not even Star Wars. Um, um, yeah, we need to. I, I know he's. A, I know he's a great actor, but I don't know many of the roles he did. We need to do a deeper dive on him because I'm sure he's done a lot. Uh, I guess he was in a bunch of comedies too. I did, I did not know that. I'm sure he's a good actor. So, so yeah. um, but actually, this, this, but he this hated was, Star Wars. I know he hated. The this Star is Wars. actually my favorite Al Guinness role in the whole movie, oh, even over Star Wars. Fantastic, in my, in this, yes, yeah. Um, so, Kyle, let's go ahead and get started because this is going to be a little bit longer. I got a feeling. Yeah, I got a feeling too. So, okay, I'll just dive right into it here, Jimbo. We have The Bridge over River Kwai, Bridge on the River Kwai, <laughs> yeah, exactly. released on 8, December 14, 1957. Um, follows the story of British POWs who are forced to build a railway bridge across the River Kwai for their Japanese captors in occupied Burma. Not knowing that the Allied forces are actually planning a daring commando raid through the jungle to destroy it. This film was directed by David Lean. The original story was written by Peter Boyle for the actual original book title book, which translated to English would be The Bridge of the Requi, but for the film itself is named Bridge on the Requi. Um, and the screenplay was also um, adapted by um, Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson. Um, for the composer, we have Mark, Mark, Malcolm Arnold, and cinematography we, was by Jack Hildyard. Um, moving on to the budget of the film, this film had a budget of just Three million dollars for 1957. So that's actually kind of expensive for the time, uh-huh. but for the scope of this film, seems positively modest considering they built a literal bridge and then destroyed a literal bridge for this film. And they bought a train. And a train. And, and they destroyed they, 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 the train. train. <laughs> Three million dollars. You would think that like that would barely cover anything, but when just for inflation, that comes out to 30.32.9 million dollars today, which still. I don't know how you would afford half the things you got in this film done. So that's some pretty inc- incredible filmmaking for the most part um, for the producers of this film. Um, gross um, for um, you know we have to go gross worldwide because the just the, the international market um, just wasn't the same wasn't as big as it was as now. Uh, so gross worldwide we have a um, gross of twenty seven point two million dollars. Just for inflation, that's almost ten times that well more than ten times that amount at two hundred ninety eight point five million dollars today. So big money. Huge 
huge earnings on this film alone. So incredible for that scenario too. Um, moving on, we're going to check on some of the awards here, which I've got to look up again. Oh my gosh, I've got to look up the awards. Oh, Kyle, you're I'm terrible. Gonna the, <laughs> so I'm gonna, actually going to look that up real quick and uh, pull it up for you too. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you some of the technical details, um, such as this has a runtime of 161 minutes um, for its whole runtime there. So pretty long for the time, especially. Um, so, but pretty, you know, in keeping with the scope of this epic film, Sound Mix is a 70 millimeter um, uh, six track audio recording and a four track stereo for its um, like public distribution um, home video market. Um, oh, Bridge of Guy Awards, point up now. Good. Um, film is filmed in Technicolors, why we have those bright, vibrant colors that are so good and lost today, unfortunately. And aspect ratio is 2.55 by 1, which is a very aggressive, very wide camera um, um, aspect ratio. It gives you wide looks of huge vistas going on in the scenes there, too. Um, film length is a walking, a whopping, a walking, a wild walking, <laughs> Christopher walking here, um, a whopping 4,415 meters. Huge film. Huge uh, mistake. Now I'm thinking of <laughs> Pretty Woman now. Um, and Process was digital intermediate for a 4K remaster that came out in just 2017. So that's pretty cool there. So we've, already, we've done a lot of good keeping work for that whole film. Um, so, okay. I'm going to dive into the awards here, which there are many plentiful awards for such a great movie. So for 1953, we have a winner for Best Picture, rewards to Sam Spiegel. Um, winner Oscar for the Best Actor in a Leading Role to Alec Guinness. Nominee for Best Actor in a Supporting Role was for Sesu um, Hayakawa for his role as, um, uh, what was his, the role's name? Was uh, Colonel, Saito? Colonel, Colonel Saito. Thank you, Jimbo, very much. Colonel Saito. Yep. And next up we have the 1958 Oscar winner for Best Director to David Lean. Then next up for the 1958 Oscar winner for Best Writing or Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, awarded to Peter Boyle, Carl Foreman, and Michael Wilson. Then we... Oh, gosh, I just hit a link by accident. Ah! Hit me with the links. Then we also have a winner for Best Cinematography, Best um, best Film Editing, and Best Music and Scoring. Yep. Next up for the BAFTA Awards in 1958, we have Best British Actor, awarded to Al Guinness, Best British Film, and Best British Screenplay, and finally, Best Film from Any Source for the BAFTA Awards there. Then for the British Society of Cinematographers, we have the 1958 winner for Best Cinematography Award to Jack Hildyard. Then for the David D. Donatello Awards, we have the winner for the Best Foreign Production Awards of Sam Spiegel. Then for the 1958 winner for the Directors Guild of America Awards for Outstanding Directorial Achievement and a Motion Picture, we have awarded to David Lane. Then for the 1958 Golden Globes Award, we have the awards for Best Motion Picture in a Drama Category, Best Actor in a Drama Category, award to Al Guinness, Best Supporting Actor to Sesu Hayakawa for his role as Kara Saito. <laughs> I'm going to say it again until I can get the pronunciation as hopefully as non-butchered as possible. Um, and also the winner for Best Director, read to David Lane. Then we have the Golden Screen Awards for Germany in 1984, where it won the award for Golden Screen with one star and the regular Golden Screen Award. Then for the Grammy Awards, it was a nominee for the 1959 Best Soundtrack Album or Dramatic Picture Score for the original cast for Michael, Malcolm Arnold. Then for the 1958 Laura Awards, it won the award for Top Drama and Top Male Dramatic Performance to Al Guinness. Then for the National Board of Review in the USA of 1957, it won the award for Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Top 10 Films of the Year Award. Then for the 1997 uh, winner, um, it was added to the National Film Registry to the National Film Preservation Board. So now it's part of the National Film Preserv Preservatory where it will be you know, presumably preserved for all time. 
Hopefully. <laughs> then for the New York Film Circle Critics Circle Awards, it was the winner for the 1957 Best Film, Best Director, and Best Actor. Then the St. Jordi Awards, it won the best. Um, they won the award for Best Foreign Actor, awarded to Al Guinness. Um, DVD exclusive rewards for the DVD re-release in 2001, where it had the Best DVD Menu Design mm. and Best DVD Original Retrospective or Documentary Featurette, awarded to um, Lornette um, Bozeria for the making of the Bridge on the River Kwai documentary in the DVD special machine itself. Cool. I wonder if I can find that on YouTube somewhere or find a DVD I can track down. It'd be cool to see. Or maybe it's part of the special features I never saw on the Voodoo. I don't know. I have to look up stuff. Yep. Next up for the Online Film Television Awards, it won the 2013 Motion Picture Awards for the Film Hall of Fame where it was inducted to the Film Hall of Fame for the Online Film Television Association. And that concludes the awards for the Bridge on the River Kwai. Had to go mix up a little format there because I'd look at my phone instead of having it printed out for me. But we got through it, and that's good. And now we can move on to the cast, which we have an amazing all-star cast there as well. So, first up, we have William Holden playing the role of Shears. William Holden um, was the main star of a film we've just covered very recently, Sunset Boulevard in 1950. So he's the main actor in there too. And he's also in the film Stalag 17 in 1953 as well. Then next up, we have the legendary Alec Guinness playing the role of Colonel Nicholson. Alec Guinness was, it was easily recognizable as Rose Ob- the original Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars Episode One: A New Hope, and, of course, the other two sequels after that. So that's him there for Alec Guinness. Is, you know, easily his most iconic role for what most people know, and this role, too, is probably you know second or third to Lawrence of Arabia, the other film he started in in 1962. So these three films are easily Alec Guinness's like, top dramatic works. Um, in terms of like audience uh, familiarity, at least. So that's definitely there, too. Next up, we have Jack Hawkins playing the character of Mayor Warden. Jack Hawkins uh, was also in the film Zulu in 1964 and Land of the Pharaohs in 1955. Then after that, we have Sesu Hayawakawa playing the role of Colonel Saito. Um, Sesu was also in the films The Cheat in 1915. Wow. Yeah, early early on in his life, too. Um, he was also in the film The Geisha Boy in 1958, just a year after this film released, and the film Tokyo Joe with Humphrey Bogart in 1949. So that had to be a silent film, didn't it? Uh, more than likely, yeah. You know, And he also made a lot of uh, exclusively Japan films himself, so if they even had audio, it would have been Japanese for him, speaking Japanese the entire time as well. Um, he actually um, came out of retirement to do this film, actually. I'm sure that might be in your trivia notes later on to go. Um, so next up, we have James Donald playing the role of Major Clifton. James Donald was also in such films such as the uh, also uh, one of the biggest World War II classics, The Great Escape, in 1963. One of my personal favorites. Yeah, easily. It's, it's a great film. And Quartermass and the Pit in 1967. Next up, we have Jeffrey Horn playing the role of Lieutenant Joyce. Jeffrey Horn was also in the films Big Daddy in 1999 with Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> and the film Tempest in 1958. So that's a huge that's a huge timeline of career spending works right there. I didn't expect to see Big Daddy here. <laughs> I should have read that more thoroughly when I went through this. Um, next up, we have Andre Morale playing the role of Colonel Green. Andre Morale was also in the film Ben Hur in 1959, one of the film. other greatest films of all time. Kind of, and looks. that's where we went on that uh, field trip, the field trip to the see museum where... and talked with the, one of the directors there. Yeah. Absolutely, if you want to time. go back and listen to that episode we did, it was uh, me, Terrence, Kyle, and I believe my dad while went on that trip. Yeah. Up there, uh, uh, up there in Indiana. It was a, it was a lot of fun. I'm immensely proud of what we did there. Oh, that was great. great. Yeah, um, yeah. And he was in, uh, he was also in the film Cash on Demand in 1961. That was Andrew Morale again. Then next up, we have John Boxer playing the role of Major Hughes. John Boxer was also in the films The Blue Lagoon in 1949 and the film Frenzy in 1972. 
Then next up, we have Percy Herbert playing the role of Grogan. Percy Herbert was also in the films The Guns of the Navarone in 1961 and the film Black Snake in 1973. Then next up, we have Harold Goodwin playing the role of Baker. Harold Goodwin was also in the film Quartermass in the, in the Pit um, in 1958 and the film The Cameraman in 1928. Then finally, we have Ann Sears playing the role of the nurse. Um, Ann Sears is also in the film The Flying Doctor in 1959 and the film The Cat and the Mouse in 1958. And that concludes uh, the, the, the cast list for Bridge of Christ, which well, is kind of surprising because you see so many characters in this film. There's a lot of extras. There's a whole lot of extras. <laughs> a lot. But very few characters. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a very powerful movie. Um, I think one thing we need to talk about at the beginning is... Alec Guinness's character in this movie. He's a uh, is he a captain, corporal, first lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, colonel Nicholson. Yeah. So he basically says, "Look, you know, none of my men, uh, officers, officers, are going to work on your bridge." Yeah. He said, "You know, all these other men can work," which I was like, "Wow, that's thanks a lot, Colonel." But. Uh, He's like it's in the it's in the treaty yeah. or whatever that none of the officers how, were how war. prisoners are treated right. in the war yeah uh, and he's like well yeah you're gonna get this done you're gonna go build this bridge and you're all gonna do it because if it's not he's like no we're not <laughs> he's yeah, like, yeah. no absolutely refuses yeah. it's not by rules uh, I will follow my rules right. there you go yeah so they end up locking him in the uh, what they call it the uh, hot box uh, yeah mm-hmm. ah. and he's in there for who knows how long I don't remember it's Presumably, a couple days like, yeah. almost probably a week or more yeah yeah. Um, but but he ends up basically winning, uh, and he said, "Look, you know, uh, I need your help." Um, which brings me to my—I don't want to say philosophical question, Kyle, but as a soldier, uh, or uh, let's say United States Army, mm-hmm. when he agrees to help build the bridge and to build it to the best of his ability. Do you think he was in the right or in the wrong instead of trying to sabotage oh, uh, the the building of the bridge? Because it's basically his fault that things go awry at the end of the movie. You're right. You're uh, right. Because he, he, he sees that wire in the water and he's like, no, no, something's wrong. There's, and then he realizes. Yeah. It is it is an amazing portrait of his character throughout this entire film. And I believe he actually is, you know, Alkins is, actually is the main character as much as right. they kind of play William Holden as the American. Sure, yeah. um, but Colonel Nicholson um, is probably the main character of this film in my eye um, for his, like, he, he sees the bridge as an opportunity to cement his own legacy as a career. And so that's when he starts basically, you know, making sure and uh, organizes his platoon to... Um, you know, make the best bridge possible um, for for the, the, the Japanese you know government. Um, well, he even goes, has that plaque made that says "This bridge is made proud. by British soldiers," and like yeah. we're you know proud, proud of this. Of and yeah, and so it's uh, it's difficult to say whether or not it's it's morally objectionable because you know one because it's a fictional film. Obviously, it's impossible to say whether that would have made detrimental effort that would have made a detrimental impact on the war effort for British soldiers it's if not that entirely was fictional Kyle well to a degree this, this is a fictionalized version of the story kind right. of agree to but it's it's hard to say whether or not like if okay as a civilian at the very least it's hard to say or if, if lack of historical knowledge 
you know, would this have made a critical difference to the war effort if he had made the bridge proper or if he had made just a piece of crap bridge? What would have that made? Would that made the difference in any key management? When, you know, would, would have British soldiers would have died if they, just because he made a good bridge? I think it's kind of hard to say. And if, 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 if he made a great bridge and the war ended, he would still have that legacy in his mind. And I don't think that's morally wrong in many scenarios, too. But it is kind of questionable at the very degree. And this film does assert that as a question. It doesn't give us a clear answer in the film, in my opinion. We're well, not, I think at the end, he, he I think he even says, what have I done? Yes. And I think he realizes, well, the, oh, this is what's happening now, and we're all going to die. Yeah, he, you know, uh, to, to a degree, like, it's like he forgot a war was going on. Right. You He's know, like, he became friends, I guess, with, with Saito. Colonel, Colonel Saito, because he came to, like... Um, uh, I think their uh, mutual understanding of respect of power for both men, I think. Exa- exactly, yes. They, they show compassion for one another, basically, like that. And, yeah, to become, you know, friends and, you know, still aware that they're enemies, but also uh, a, a respect for one another, right. for sure. Um, so, yeah, so he, so he gets lost in that mindset to a degree. And I, I do agree, by the end, when he sabotages the sabotage... Yeah. <laughs> that is clearly him making a mistake to a degree. Uh, but still, I understand his motivations um, all the way up to that point. And even then, um, you know, when he has that risk of it being threatened, I understand the irrational actions he took to prevent that. And then, you know, inevitably the realization like, oh, God, what have I done? Um, being and, a profound and I thought it was awful too. fitting that he's the one that ended up landing on the dynamite and blowing the bridge blowing up. up the, I the think plunger. that was... Yeah, yeah so um, really, once again, Excellent filmmaking on that yep. part too, and the fact that it can be left in kind of a gray area without like a definitive answer from many people, um, I think speaks to the quality of the film because that is definitely the intention. Yeah. It's not the intention to answer that question so much as it is to give you that question. But I thought we should you. bring that up at the beginning before I go into my notes that he basically won over the general Saito, and they, I wouldn't say became friends, but they ended up a mutual respect and tolerated each other. You know, mm-hmm. he wanted to get the job well done to help Saito get promoted, or whatever he was trying to do, make yeah. it look good. So. But he also wanted to take pride in his own work. So I think we should cover that at the beginning. So when we go through some of these notes, you'll understand um, some of the actual historical stuff that happened and stuff of this movie that happened. So here we go. At one point, producer Sam Spiegel wanted Humphrey Bogart to star in this movie. Here's, of course they did. Here's looking at your bridge, kid. <laughs> to be fair, it's a, it's a movie in the 50s. Everyone wanted Humphrey Bogart to star or in this film. Or Spencer Tracy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We want uh, one or the other or both. <laughs> <laughs> Ali Guinness actually turned initially turned down the role of Colonel Nicholas and saying, I can't imagine anyone wanting to watch a stiff upper lip British colonel for two and a half hours. It's a long movie. It is, it is a, a very, very long, long movie. movie. Yeah. 161 minutes to be exact. Uh, the bridge cost $250,000 to build. Construction began before anyone had been cast. Oh, wow. Yeah. Pre-production uh, is a great tool sometimes. Yep. <laughs> Uh, after the final scene was shot, producer Sam Spiegel shipped the film footage on five different planes to minimize the risk of loss. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you lose that, you lost the whole yeah, entire thing. Yeah, you lose the whole film. Yeah. I, I bet like copies aren't easy to make either. It's crazy. Uh, when this movie was first aired on commercial television in the U.S. on Sunday, September 25th, 1966, ABC preempted its entire evening schedule so that this movie could be aired in one night as opposed to two parts on consecutive nights. This was considered to be a bold move at that time. It was the longest single network telecast of a movie up to then, three hours and ten minutes with commercials. Ford Motor Company was the lone sponsor, beating the previous record set by Sir Lawrence Olivier's Richard III, which was telecast by NBC over three hours on March 11, 1956. An estimated 60 million viewers watched. Oh, wow. It is incredible, that era, that like you, like, you put anything on TV... 
basically all of America is going to watch it. Well, especially yeah. when you only had four channels or five channels. Yeah, exactly. And right. they showed it like like mm-hmm. I remember growing up uh, like Stephen King's television uh, series movies would be yeah. on, and it would be four consecutive nights or three nights, five yeah. nights, and you'd have to watch them. All. Yeah, yeah, and everyone like did. the stand. Yeah, I remember yeah. the stand. Mm-hmm. Which we should cover that. That's a great uh, that series. That would be a fun time, too. Yeah. Uh, the title of the English translation of the French novel, which we talked, is Le Pont de la Riviera Quai was the bridge over the River Quai. That so. sounded very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I tried. Yeah. I can fake it till I, I make tell. it, right? Uh, it was Percy Herbert who suggested the idea of using Kenneth Alfred's Colonel Bogey March uh, to Sir David Lean, which is the famous uh, uh-huh. comma will make you homicide. <laughs> <laughs> that was and, Very and then, funny you know, funny the you know I, I, I was watching. I was watching. The, this is the true story. I was watching this. Uh, I pulled it up on my iPad and I was laying in bed watching it. And you know, I had the volume down low, and my wife's laying next to me. And uh, something, something happened. And uh, I paused it or something. She said, "What did they get the bridge made?" <laughs> I was like, she was paying attention. And I'm like, she's just listening though. I said, "You're listening." <laughs> she said, "Well, I gotta know." <laughs> Maybe she go through the three hours I went through. Three hours of basically listening to like a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Who would do that? Oh, man. Three-hour podcast? (laughs) Insanity. Uh, The movie's story was loosely based on a true World War II incident and the real-life character of Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tuzzi. One of several Allied POWs, Tuzzi was in charge of his men from late 1942 through May 1943 when they were ordered to build two River Kwai bridges in Burma. One of steel, one of wood, to help move Japanese supplies and troops from Bangkok to Rangoon. In reality, the bridge took eight months to build rather than two months, and they were used for two years. They were destroyed in an Allied bombing raid in late June of 1945. Tuzi's memoirs were compiled into a 1991 book by Peter Davies titled The Man Behind the Bridge. Man behind the bridge. I gotta check that out. Sometimes. That's that sounds good. I'm gonna have to get an yeah. uh, audiobook. Hopefully, I'll, I'll look it up while you're look at it. I was like, let me look. The man behind the bridge. Uh, William Holden, then a major star, was brought into the project to provide box office appeal after Cary Grant oh, turned down the role. He would have been great in it, too. He received 300000 up front and was guaranteed a 10% share of the profits to be 10%. paid at a rate of $50,000 a year. This is one reason why Holden sued to stop the first American television showing a movie in 1966, claiming it would hurt future box office receipts on which he was dependent. The lawsuit was unsuccessful, by the way. Uh, Because the movie made so much money, his shares eventually accumulated to the point where the studio was making more off the interest on the unpaid balance than Holden was paid a year. A settlement was reached where Holden was paid a lump sum and any future payments were willed to a motion picture relief fund. Oh wow! A lot of money in there, sure. Yep. Yeah. Jibbo, I don't think there's an audiobook of that. Maybe you can read it. No, just no. <laughs> that. Uh, director Sir David Lean initially wanted Nicholson's soldiers to enter the camp while singing "Hitler Has Only Got One Ball," a popular uh, parody version of the Colonel Bogey March, poking fun at Adolf Hitler and various other Nazi leaders. <laughs> Very funny. When I want to learn for that, it's alert. Sam Spiegel told him it was too vulgar, and the whistling-only uh, version was used instead. Uh, Sasu Hayaka, wa, uh, Colonel Saito, um, I'm going to slaughter some of these names, so just bear with me. Edited his copy of the script to contain only his lines of dialogue. That way, he remained oblivious to the real nature of his character's fate. Oh, wow. That's a good thing. For the scene where Colonel Nicholson emerges from the oven after several days confined there... Sir Alec Guinness based his faltering walk 
on that of his son Matthew when he was recovering from polio. Guinness regarded this uh, one tiny scene as some of the finest work he did throughout his entire career. I will say he definitely sold that scene of just, yeah, the struggle to walk and just, like, clearly, like... Malnourished his, like, and... Yeah, the, the last fumes of fuel he has in his body trying to push him there to the door with dignity, and he still makes it, but just barely. It's a great scene of acting, yep. so... At one point during filming, director Sir David Lean nearly drowned when he was swept away by a river current. Actor Jeffrey Horn saved his life. Oh, awesome. Good news, Jeffrey there. Being a hero. <laughs> yep. Man's man. Uh, producer Sam Spiegel bought the railroad train from the Silanese government. It had previously belonged to an Indian Maharaja and had been uh, and had seen 65 years of active service. Spiegel. Chimba. What's a Maharaja? What do you think it is? Well, my dad used to say, "Oh, you great Maharaja." So I think it's like a, a like a king. King, I would okay. say, maybe well, something like that. Why don't you look it up there, Kyle? Like I could spell Maharaja. Well, you want me to spell it for you? Here you go. <laughs> Just so M A H M A H A R A R A J A J A H A H Maharaja meeting. Um, an administrator rank in India, generally speaking, a Hindu prince ranking above a raja. Oh, I was close. You really were. Awesome. Yeah. King I, is a synonym for it. Yeah. I just, I just remember the three stooges where he's like, Raja, yaha. Yeah. Just how uncultural I knew that I didn't know off the top of my head. I'm sure Jimbo did. Uh, Spiegel had it refurbished, uh, the, the train refurbished completely, and then had one mile of a railway track laid for it. So, uh, Producer Sam Spiegel was also en route from Paris to London when he bought the then much talked about novel by Pierre Boulet out of curiosity. By the time he arrived in London, so what's a flight from Paris to London? How long do you think that lasts? Paris to London? <laughs> so when minutes. he read the, he had read the entire novel. Mm-hmm. Just from Paris to London, that can't be. That's some quick reading, actually. Probably. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, it's like Taylor Swift going across. He had the read the novel and decided what his next movie was going to be. He immediately flew back to Paris to for a meeting with a surprised Boulet who agreed to sell him the movie rights. So it was like. Oh, thanks for you know, letting me do this book. Leave, boom, come back. Yeah, like, wait, I need the movie back. I'm like, I need the movie rights to your book. What? <laughs> <laughs> Producer Sam Spiegel, in his efforts for securing rights, casting locations, etc., flew around the world four times in the three years it took to get this movie from page to screen. Oh, wow. For one sunset scene, just one, Sir David Lean specifically traveled 150 miles away to capture it. Oh, it's that one scene too where they're all climbing the hill, but they got the sun in the background uh, for that one scene just to get it in two t- the, the two aspect ratios there. Well, that's Incredible. what you think, but I don't know. I watched a documentary oh. on YouTube about it. It's actually really cool. Okay. There's a scene where they're they're um, like two, like two or three of the soldiers are walking up the hill while the one who has his um his wounded oh okay foot about, yeah. is on the back of the mountain. Yeah, and you can see the sun in the background there, and like it was like almost impossible to get that one shot where you can have both distances and the sun in the background at the same time. So they traveled way far out to get that one shot, and it's really impressive. <sighs> movie. Yep. Yep. Assistant director John Carrison uh, was killed in a car crash on the way to one of the locations. A makeup man was also badly injured in the same accident. So That's really sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Suez Canal crisis of 1956 badly affected production. Uh, vital equipment that would normally have been shipped through the canal had to be flown out uh, uh, to the location instead. I'm sure there would vastly a huge expense. There were no facilities on the island of Ceylon to process film rushes, so the day's filming had to be flown to London to be processed and then flown back to Ceylon. Jeez. That's a lot of that's an expensive trip too. Yeah, yeah. It's like sounds like most of this budget just went to like planes back and forth. But my question is, did he just have the one canister and send it, taking a chance? Because when it was done, he sent it on five. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got a point there. That's really insane to me. Like, like, 
Like, yeah, very easily could have been a world where we didn't get this film at all. Yep. <laughs> Just because of all the, the fakes. You know, uh, the for the scenes where William Holden, who played Shears, Jack Hawkins, who played Major Warden, Jeffrey Home, who played Lieutenant Joyce, and the Native Girls, where they had to wade through the swamps, they were wading through specifically created ones. The real swamps in Cylon were deemed too dangerous. Nevertheless, the leeches in the recreated swamps were real. Oh, wow. So they used real leeches. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. yeah. You ever had a leech on your car? Yes. Many times. How was it? Uh... Not that bad, actually. <laughs> He's like, I got one right now. I mean, now. They're, they're annoying, but I mean, like, they're, they're not like the end of the world. Peeling them off was annoying. Too. But they're, they're like like baby small leeches, though. Like uh, leeches you get in, <laughs> I'm sure in Japan could be a lot worse. Uh, producer Sam Spiegel wanted to release the movie by December 31st, 1957 deadline for the movie to be eligible for Academy Award consideration for that year. But by early December 1957, the movie did not yet have a musical score. Spiegel hired Sir Malcolm Arnold to compose the score which Arnold completed in a mere 10 days. Oh, wow. Impressive. The movie was released prior uh, to the 1957 Academy Award consideration deadline, and Arnold was rewarded with a 1957 Academy Award for Best Musical Score for a Speedy Effort. Impressive. How do you like that? Yeah. Yeah, just knocked day. out one of the best. 10 days. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. I do, I'll do it for a six-pack. Don't worry. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> Just as in Love is a Many Splendid Thing from 1955, normally hairy-chested William Holden was forced to submit to a full body wax for his many shirtless scenes in this movie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He's like, look, listen, you're way too uh, hairy. Kelly Clarkson. You are way too hairy. You are an ape. <laughs> wow. Uh, Sasu Hayao Kawawa. Kawa. I get that right eventually. He was 68 years old when he was cast as Colonel Soito. Uh, having limited command of the English language, he focused only on those pages of the script in which he had dialogue. The rest of the pages he tore out. The complete script was about one inch thick. Hayaka, Hayakawa, Hayakawa, yeah, Hayakawa. try that. With the pages torn out, was only about an eighth of that. Oh, wow. so yeah. Uh, prior to casting Sir Alec Guinness, producer Sam Spiegel tried to persuade Spencer Tracy. <laughs> there you go to play part of the Colonel Nicholson. Uh, Tracy had read the books and told Spiegel emphatically that the part must be played by an Englishman. Tracy's like, no. Yeah. The book has to be an Englishman. Right. Uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier was offered the part of Colonel Nicholson, but turned it down in order to direct The Prince and the Showgirl instead. In retrospect, Olivier Olivier said that it was a sensible decision to go off and do love scenes with Marilyn Monroe rather than tough it out of the jungle (laughs) with the director, Sir David Leon. (laughs) The man makes a compelling case. Chuckles of silence. <laughs> <laughs> what do I want to do? What do I want to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, the eight months of filming began in October 1956. A scouting expedition of the Real River Kwai had shown that it was an unsuitable location for filming, as it appeared to be nothing more than a trickling stream. <laughs> the production finally settled on a tiny village called, uh, um, forgive me if I mispronounce this, uh, Kitlug- Kitluga Gula. And Cylon now, which is Sri Lanka, uh, the site was remote and a compound of bungalows had to be built for the crew. Shooting in the jungles of Cylon was not always a happy experience for cast and crew. I'm sure. Living conditions were uncomfortable due to the intense heat and humidity. The unit also had to coexist with snakes, leeches, and other indigenous creatures of the area. Illness was also rampant. Added to the discomfort was Sir David Lean's tendency to take many hours or even days to get a single shot. Oh gosh, yeah, I bet, I bet it was miserable there too. Plus, like I mentioned, like you know, just like you go anywhere in the world, especially in that well, area, let's, you're let's gonna not, get dysentery. Let's not you're forget gonna... about the um, 
the the little African uh, African man that was in there and he was just the fanner. Yeah, <laughs> he's just sitting there pulling that string. Like that's his one job. I was like, really? Yeah. Um, to keep costs down, producer Sam Spiegel decided not to hire any extras, using crew members and sideline locals instead. <clears throat> this meant that some of the British prisoners were really natives of the region, wearing makeup to appear Caucasian in the background, and they like, and they they were ordered like on how British they looked to the back as well too. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Oh man, guys, surprised. Like, I really I don't notice it when I'm watching the film though. I don't think no. about it at all. Yeah, so they did a good job, even in the 4K remaster. I'm I'm really impressed. Uh, when Sir Alec Guinness, as Colonel Nicholson, ruminates on the completed bridge to Colonel Saito, he and director Sir David Lean <coughs> excuse me, argued over how the scene should be shot. Guinness wanted a close-up on his face, while Lean insisted on shooting him from behind. Nevertheless, Guinness loved his dialogue and deliberately timed his delivery to coincide with the setting of the sun. That was a cool scene. It really is incredibly impressive. And, it, once again, and I think that's the moment where they came to that mutual understanding. Like The mutual understanding, too. And or like, it's done. You and, know. And, 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 you know, Al Guinness is making the, you know, the subtext explicit. You know, he's bringing out, he's saying the quiet part out loud. Like, yes, this is my legacy. This is something I want to leave, you know, for the rest of my life. Right. And it's a beautiful scene. Yep. Absolutely gorgeous. I love the scene. Uh, the elephants employed in helping build the bridge would take breaks every four hours and lie around in the water, whether the crew wanted them to or not. <laughs> <laughs> Can't fight nature. Yeah, 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 okay, go take a bath. Mm-hmm. Uh, during shooting, Sir Alec Guinness continued to have doubts about his performance and the direction he was getting from Sir David Lean. To put Guinness at ease, Lean decided to show him a rough cut of certain sequences. One night, Lean ran over an hour's worth of footage for Sir Alec with Guinness's wife and son also attending. During the screening, nothing was said. At the end, the Guinness family thanked Lean and promptly walked out, leaving Lean with a, no clue as to what to do, uh, to think of their reaction or lack of a, or lack thereof. Later that night, Lean received a visit from Guinness, who told him that he and his family had decided that Nicholson was the best thing he had ever done. Oh, that is, yeah, like if someone gave me like that, like work I gave him, like I would cry. <laughs> <laughs> you almost cried right there when I read it. Yeah, Kyle. yeah, like that is so sweet. Yeah. Uh, some considered this movie to be an insulting parody of British Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tuzzi, the real senior Allied officer at the bridge. A former prisoner at the camp stated that it is unlikely that a man like the fictional Nicholson could have risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel, and if he had, due to his collaboration, he would have been quietly eliminated by the other prisoners. Oh wow, yeah, that's, that's what I was talking about earlier. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with you that like I think like in reality those things would not come to pass, but you know in this in the context of this film it still holds up like right. it's still fine. Uh, Rock Hudson turned down the role of Shears in order to star in a Farewell to Arms. Uh, the paratroopers in this movie were members of the Royal Air Force stationed at Sri Lanka. In order to film the paratroopers jumping from the plane, director of photography Jack Hildyard lashed himself to the wing of the British military plane carrying the paratroopers and shot the jump with a handheld 16 millimeter camera. That's incredibly that's stupid. That's some terrible <laughs> behavior for sure. I'll live forever. It'll be fine. <laughs> Percy Herbert, who played the role of a prisoner uh, of war in this movie, spent four years as a Japanese POW in Singapore, where he was forced to help build the Burma Railway, as depicted in the film. Oh, wow. So, real-life experience. Yeah. Uh, the Thai government renamed a stretch of the Mae Klong River in the Kwai so that tourists could go to the filming location and see the recreated bridge. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Uh, Colonel Sato really struck, accidentally, Sir Alec Guinness, uh, hard enough to draw blood in one scene. As evidence in the movie, Guinness played the scene without flinching. 
to be impressive. Right. Kyle, just stand there. Let me slap it. you to draw blood and see if you flinch. <laughs> you know, if if I knew it would make good content, I might be willing. <laughs> yeah, everybody yeah. just listen to see if you can hear the blood. <laughs> amongst the survivors of the construction of the Burma CM, uh, CM Railway, uh, there is often a lot of bitterness directed towards uh, this movie. As real life conditions were much, much worse, with 13,000 POWs and 100,000 civilians dying during its construction. Oh my God. The filmmakers felt depicting conditions as harsh as they actually were would be too depressing for moviegoers. They were probably right, too. Yeah. It, it, it's uh, it's a kind of a catch 22, Devil Lay like, like, yeah, if you, if you give it the most realistic depiction, you can have a movie that no one actually wants to watch. And at the same time, though, it, like, you know, by not having a real depiction of it, you kind of devalue the real sacrifices of those people who actually made it in time too. Yeah. Uh, we ran into the same problem with uh, uh, the, uh, the Schindler's List and some other films too, where yeah. it's like like the real exhibition is so much more sad. No one would actually sit through it. Um, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a it's a it's a problem of all art to a degree. Okay, do you want when Shears, Warden, and Joyce are hiking to the bridge? The packs carried by the Siamese girls are obviously empty, judging by the ease in which they carry them and how they swing on the poles. This is usually the case with any kind of luggage or backpack in movies. Hmm. Impressive. Or packs, not backpack. Yeah. Uh, this is in obviously included in the 1001 Miss Movies You Must See Before You Die, by uh, edited by Steven Schneider. According to Mylene Diamangayo in her memoirs, no one applauded during the premiere of this movie. However, it eventually became a huge success all over the world. Deservedly so, it can be huge success around the world. Yeah. It's sad that we didn't we could, we didn't appreciate the film for, at the time as much, but I'm sure there was you know many good reasons as to why too. So. Uh, this movie is included in Roger Ebert's great movies list. Uh, Sir David Lean and Sir Ali Guinness's third movie collaboration together. Uh, this movie has many elements of truth woven into its fictionous uh, fictitious na- narrative. While prisoners were used as slave laborers to build the railway depicted, the factual commander, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tuzzi, was the senior officer in this camp and risked his own life many times by deliberately sabotaging the bridge and building efforts completely different from the senior officer in this movie. Hmm. So that's what we were talking about at the beginning of this uh, Yeah, the real-life person did yep. as expected where it's like, you know, you have to sabotage your enemy at all costs. Although Jack Hawkins received second billing, he doesn't make his first appearance until 75 minutes into this film. <laughs> that's... Okay. According to the book, uh, the Guinness uh, Book of Records, the, this movie was the top money maker of 1958 in the U.S. and Canada. Impressive. Uh, the hospital in the film, as the sign in the film disc indicates, was the Mount Lavinia Hospital, and really was a hospital in World War II. It became a hotel in 1947, had a distinguished history, and is still in operation. It is located south of Colombo in Sri Lanka, where uh, which is where the film was made. Although the cast and crew stayed at the government rest house in uh, Kitagula, Gala, and overlooks the side of the bridge. Or yep. it overlooks the side of the bridge. I bet it's a gorgeous place to visit even today. Yep. Uh, the real name of the bridge on the River Kwai on the on the 258-mile-long Burma Railway between Bainpong, Thailand, and Thembezuziyat, Burma, uh, built from 1940 to 1944, was called Bridge 277. 277. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom used some of the same locations as the bridge. Spielberg, uh, who is uh, Lean's biggest fan, was thrilled that he was shooting on the same spots. Temple of Doom. Which one was that? Was it the, the first one, one where they ripped the heart out? The guy rips the heart out. Oh, that was the, wasn't that the second, second one? one? Yeah, the second one. Yeah. 
Uh, of the estimated 330,000 people who worked on the Burma Railway, including 250,000 Asian laborers and 61,000 POWs, about 90,000 of the laborers and about 16,000 Allied prisoners died during construction. Basically a third. Jeez. Yep. It's a terrible mortality rate. Uh, the classic whistling scene. Oh, would not approve. <laughs> the classic whistling scene is referenced in The Breakfast Club and Spaceballs. The later film is a spoof of another Alec Guinness film, which was obviously Star Wars. Mm. Here you go, Kyle. Kwai was not the only classic film inspired by novelist Pierre Boulet. In oh. 1967, Gosh. the classic science fiction film, film was Planet of, of the, the Apes. That was also based on the novel of the same name. And if you want to. Check out um, our collaboration with the Evil Never Dies podcast, uh, Brett Stepanoff. What an incredibly uh, odd legacy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. One of the greatest films of all time and one of the greatest film series of all time. Right. All created to one man for writing two books that I don't think he really thought that highly of. <laughs> <laughs> but we do. The apes. <laughs> uh, as Colonel Nicholson's men uh, march in place during their first entry into the camp, the ground underneath their feet quickly becomes moist at the surface. This would be expected uh, as the film was shot almost entirely in Sri Lanka, an island of only 25,000 miles in the Indian Ocean with, with 80% humidity and almost 200 days of rain a year. Wow, that's miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so much rain. Oh, my God. Several members, and I, and I want to take this opportunity to, to, to emphasize this paragraph that I'm about to read, is this film had several uh, people that were actually servicemen and women, these actors. So I'm going to read yeah. these. So Not hard I to find for the time. No, and I think, I think it's... Due diligence that we recognize these people. So okay, here we go. Uh, so several members of the cast crew were actually World War II veterans. Star William Holden served as an officer in the U.S. Army Air Forces during uh, during the war, while screenwriter Michael Wilson was an officer in the Marine Corps. Screenwriter Carl Foreman produced training films for the U.S. Army Signal Corps, while uncredited writer Calder Willingham served with the Officer of War Information after dropping out of the Citadel. Star Ali Guinness was a supply ferryman and landing craft commander during the Allied invasion of Sicily while serving in the Royal Navy. Author Pierre Boulet enlisted in the French army uh, in Indochina and served until the German occupation of France, after which he joined the Free French Forces in Singapore, serving as a secret agent with the French uh, Resistance. Actor Sissé Hayakawa... Uh, Saito, as we know him, uh, was also a secret agent in the uh, French Resistance, um, assisting Allied aviators escape from enemy territories after being shot down. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yep. Composer Sir Malcolm Arnold, technical advisor Eliam uh, Pironi, and actors Jack Hawkins, James Donald, Andre Morel, and Percy Herbert all served, with the Briti- or served in the British Army. Herbert also spent four years as a prisoner of war in the Japanese POW camp Changi, where he was forced to help build the Burma Railway as depicted in this film. So yeah. a lot of uh, soldiers there for their respected countries. Um, after the scene that shows Major uh, Warden stab the Japanese soldier who then shoots him in the foot, the large bats called Indian Flying Foxes that filled the sky were startled into flying by crew members firing their rifles. According to Property Master, Ed, uh, yeah, Property Master Eddie Fowley, when they started flying, they also started to urinate. In an interview, he said it was like hot, stinking rain falling all over us. Oh, God, that's so gross. Oh, that's so gross. Oh, my gosh. No, 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 no. A million times. No. Well, it scared him half to death, Kyle. Yeah. Uh, 
here's a couple of the spoilers for the movie. So uh, the train also had a small diesel engine at the rear to make sure all four coaches went off the bridge after the steam locomotive fell off to make sure it continued Intel to go. making there. I believe they also had like five cameras they used to shoot that one scene though, because of course they only have one train crash. Yeah, I think it's five. And I think they lost one of them in the crash. Yeah. Uh, the destruction of the bridge, as depicted in the movie, is entirely fictional. In reality, two bridges were built, a temporary wooden one and a permanent steel and concrete one only a few months later. Both bridges were used for two years until they were destroyed by Allied aerial bombings. The steel bridge was repaired and is still in use today. Oh, wow. On the first take of the final bridge sequence, the explosives on the bridge didn't detonate. <laughs> the train crossed over safely, only to crash down a hill on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Elephants, back around. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, after filming was completed on the exploding bridge sequence, which cost an enormous amount of money and time, rumor has it that the footage disappeared somewhere between Cylon and London. It was finally discovered two weeks later, sitting in the intense heat out on the runway at the airport in Cairo, Egypt. Miraculously, it was undamaged. That's amazing. <laughs> that is Oh my is god, like how close we came to not having this film. That sounds me. Uh, Sir Ali Guinness never saw the bridge blow up. He had completed all of his scenes and returned to England when the explosion was filmed. Oh, that sucks. Well, I mean, I'm sure he thought to be out of there probably. Yeah. <laughs> After the bridge was blown up, souvenir hunters swarmed all over the set claiming pieces of the timber. <laughs> that, yeah, with the guns good. Yeah. I wonder if anybody ever took a piece of that and had uh, Ali Guinness sign it before he died. Sign it or verify something like that too. Yeah. I don't think it was that kind of destruction. <laughs> I think the reality is it's good lumber we can reuse. <laughs> I don't know. It says Souvenir Hunters. Oh, okay, Souvenir Hunters. Okay, Souvenir Hunters. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe. After a successful stunt test for the climax where a Japanese soldier falls off the bridge into the river, stuntman Frank Howard was swept under the strong current during the shooting of the scene. Prop man Tommy Early dived in to save him but was also pulled under. Once they stopped struggling against the current, both men were carried to a point in the river where they were rescued. Unfortunately, Howard later died from a stomach illness while in the hospital for tropical diseases back home in England. And yes, Kyle, the last note I have here, 1,000 pounds of dynamite was used to blow up the bridge, which was filmed on five cameras and cost $250,000 for about 30 seconds of screen time. Oh, wow. So, Kyle. Basically a tenth of the budget for that one scene. Tell us about your thoughts, feelings on the bridge on the River Kwai. This film's a 10. <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of perfect cinema to me. This is one of the best films ever made of all time. Um, I've watched it many times. We'll watch it many times before uh, again. Um, love this film to death. Every performance in it. I think it's fantastic and uh, enjoy it in, entirely um, in its totality. Um, there really is so much to say, but also so very little when it actually comes to mattering. Like, this is just a, a, a classic, period. It's kind of the um, summation of this whole film to me in many respects. And it will stay that way for the rest of my life. And uh, that's kind of it. I really don't have that much to actually add to it before. Like, Al Guinness' performance is amazing. Everything in it is amazing. I love this film. And that's just kind of the long and short of it. <laughs> so um, that's where I'm going to kind of leave it there. This film's a 10 out of 10 for me. Um, as with a, a few of the films we've covered for you recently, too. Like, this is a very, very strong film. And I look forward um, to watching it throughout my life. Can I just point out? No. The last, can't. <laughs> the last couple of films that I've picked out have mm. been 10s, Kyle. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard and this one can't get much better than that. Yeah, yeah. Someone's little playing it safe, not taking any risks. Meanwhile, I'm out there finding the amazing garbage for you all. You know, well, you think I'm that's garbage? Wait till, wait till you hear what we're doing next week. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have to agree. This is a great film. Um, is it a ten? Some days I debate if it's a nine five or a ten, but I'm not taking anything away from it. Ali Guinness, you know, I knew him. 
for Star you Wars. Knew. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. yeah, back in my day. I mean, Star Wars came out the year I was born, so I kind of knew. I feel like on a personal level, but uh, I, I mostly knew him for his his older stuff, like Obi Wan Kenobi. That was who he was. Yeah. But then when you sit back and you watch Lawrence of or Lawrence of Arabia, you watch this movie, you start to appreciate more. How much of like a career long actor he was? What an uh, yeah. icon he was! Yeah. Um, so we definitely have to look into some more of his movies. Um, I think General uh, Soto or Saito. I think he did an outstanding job in this too. You felt for him too because you knew if he didn't get that bridge completed, he was probably going to die. Because if you remember oh, the one yeah, scene where, where the one scene in the movie where he's like sitting there and he's like rode his family or something and he's got his samurai sword out there or whatever the picture. And he's basically, you know, it's like, I guess if I die, I die, because we're not going to get this done. Um, but, yeah, I think I think it shows, um, you know, how you can be civil even in a time of war after some torture and stuff. But, I mean, uh, you got that. And then you got the one guy that was trying to lie and say that he was a high uh, Navy guy yeah, in before. the Navy. And I'm not going to go back there. And the guy said, well, you're going back since you were already there, you know. And, or we could just turn you in and say, oh, you lied about this. And he's like. They basically blackmailing you. Yeah, he's like, yes, sir, let's go back. Which ends up costing him his life too, right? Mm-hmm. Did he end up getting killed? Yeah, he gets killed yep. as well in that operation, that commando operation. Uh, yeah. So um, I think I think it's really well done. I think you, you fall in love with several of the characters. You, you, you're invested in their journey that they do. And when something like this is kind of loosely based on real life stuff, it makes you dive further in and want to check out the real life story. And give you a great respect for exactly. the film and the history it's exactly. based on. So, yeah, uh, great movie. I, I I implore everybody to watch this at least once, mm-hmm. um, and then make up your mind. It may become a thing, or it may not be your movie type of movie, but yeah. at least give it a shot. Yeah. It is considered one of the greatest for a, a lot of reasons. So, yeah. So, so, Jimbo, do you want me to tell you what's coming up next? <laughs> I know what's coming because up. You next. want me to take responsibility go for ahead, this Kyle. one? Go, go yeah. ahead. So, this was on uh, my recommendation because I've had this movie on the my my uh, my backlog for more than a decade at least. Because as uh, I made clear in a previous podcast, though, I'm a big fan of The Long Goodbye, that film, and uh, its director, where I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But I remember that Paul, uh, I remember hearing that Paul Thomas Anderson was also a big fan of that same director, and he directed Punch Struck Love with some visual inspirations from The Long Goodbye in this film. So I'm like, I should watch Punch Struck Love sometime. And sure enough, that's the movie we're going to, that's the movie we're going to put on next week, Punch Struck Love, released in 2002. And oh boy, Jimbo and I, we're not prepared for what we saw, and we're going to have some pretty interesting thoughts about it. So I hope you all look forward to this next episode. It may not be a film anyone will like, but, oh boy. <laughs> I don't even know if Kyle ended up actually liking the movie. I think he tolerated it, but... I'm excited to rewatch it again uh, pretty but, soon, But let, let, let's think. I'm going to die for bridge that. Over, bridge on the River Kwai, Punch Drunk Love. We'll let the audience I gotta decide. Give you, I gotta it's give you, not that hard. i got to give you the two ends of the spectrum, Jimbo. You know, you got like the high end there, Kyle, Bridge Over Kwai. I want to go all the way to the other end. Can I, can I just tell you that... This movie, our, our Punch Drunk Love, we've we've covered, I think it's almost 340 movies or something like that that we've done. This movie, Punch Drunk Love, I'm talking about, it may be the worst one we've ever covered. <laughs> and, of all time. I have seen some bad movies. I've seen some horrible movies. I've seen some B movies that should never even been made. And this movie for me... Well, we'll get. I'll save my. I'll save my notes for next ramble. We gotta, but, we gotta save it for the actual podcast, yeah. Jimbo. Don't worry. So, if you want to watch Punch Truck Love and be ready for next episode, I'm sure you'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> so, with that being said, I think this episode is coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Love that. <laughs>